Good morning. It's great to be back at my favorite church and my favorite people this week. Uh, a couple of things before we get going. First, there's a clarification that needs to be made because last week when I was out, I heard Stephen Mansfield told you I was going to be at the Final Four and he deceived you. It's just, it's not true. I told him I was offered tickets, but I didn't actually go to the Final Four. I was actually working for Jesus in... <laughs> In Midland, Texas, the vacation spot of the U.S., no doubt. So um, Carrie asked me if she pushes two on her phone if I'll preach in Spanish, and the answer is no. That was no in English, by the way, if you needed a a translation right there. Okay, all right. Here we are. We are looking at the subject of wisdom in the book of Job, and this morning we come to some selected readings beginning in Job chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence, and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Then Job replied, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut off my life. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy and unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. Then Job replied, I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. That's God's word this morning. The poet William Blake famously wrote, Every night and every morn, some to misery are born. Every morn and every night, some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to endless night. Now what's he saying? He's saying that suffering is an inescapable and unpredictable part of life. And he's right. And if that's the case, which it is, we should then ask ourselves the question, how can we face it when it comes? Not too long after the Newtown, Connecticut school shootings back in 2012, there was a column that was written and run in the New York Times entitled, Why God? Why did this happen? And and it was written by a Roman Catholic priest who was giving a Bible-based answer to that question, but was really what was more interesting than even the column itself was the, the responses written in the comments section of the article, and, and they were all, you know, basically rejecting his answer, and some of the responses said that, you know, a person's suffering is somehow their own fault, more or less. It's sort of like a version of karma. You did something, it's your own fault. Uh, others invoked a basic Buddhism, 
which said that, you know, suffering's really an illusion. It's not really real. Some channeled the Greek Stoics and said that suffering in life is just a test. It's only a test to make you stronger. And some others said, well, because this world is all we have, because there's no God, they said, any second or moment or thought we put towards making sense of suffering is just a, a second or a moment or a thought we could be putting towards trying to eliminate what caused the suffering in the first place. Now, in other words, no one could agree. No one could agree on how to handle suffering. And that's a really big deal for two reasons. It shows us two things. First, this shows us that we have no idea as a culture how to handle suffering when it comes. And because of that first thing, it shows us a second, which is this. That we, therefore, desperately need to grasp, to apply, and to understand the book of Job, which is the Bible's response to human pain and suffering. And that's why we're looking at it today and for the next weeks, next few weeks moving forward. And two weeks ago when we began, we looked and asked a why question. Well, why? Why do we suffer? Why do people go through it? And this morning, though, we're going to ask more of a how question. And we've already asked it, so let's ask it again. How can we handle suffering when it comes? And the answer the book of Job gives us is this. It says you need comfort. You need comfort. You need comfort when you suffer. Job himself says in chapter 6, it's what a man needs. He needs, case said, loving kindness. He needs comfort when he suffers. But the, the question is, of course, what kind What kind of comfort? There are some kinds of comfort the book of Job shows us that don't work. There's others that work better. And there's a kind of healing comfort the book points us to in the end. So let's look at this under three headings this morning. First, we're going to look at miserable comforters. Two, it's better comforters. And finally, a wounded comforter. You guys ready? Let's begin. Number one, let's pick up where we left off two weeks ago. We saw the beginning of the book of Job, which is a story. Actually, it's an epic poem about a man named Job, who was the pillar of his community. Job was an amazing man, a great father, great husband, great businessman. But through no fault of his own, Job was suddenly plunged into incredible pain and darkness and suffering. And and Job loses his business, he loses his wealth, he loses all his children, and he even has some sort of really horrific illness, likely something called black leprosy. You should look it up, it wasn't good. And in the middle of this, it says, in the middle of all his, his stuff that's going on, it says three of Job's friends come to visit him. And the majority of the book, when you read it, is actually Job's friends and Job going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And there's lots of speeches and lots of discourses about the nature of God and the nature of suffering. And through it all, through all the speeches and all the discourses, one thing becomes abundantly clear, which is this. What we learn from Job's friends is they do a terrible job. (laughs) They do a terrible job. They're awful. Uh, They don't help him in any way, and Job's not afraid to let them know. At one point, he even calls them worthless physicians. (laughs) Another point, he says, ah, you guys are so smart, huh? You're so smart. I bet when you die, all the wisdom in the world goes with you. (laughs) And of course, the best one, which we just heard, was he calls them miserable comforters. At least he hadn't lost his sense 
of humor. But let's ask, what's so miserable about them? Well, let's look. Eliphaz here, uh, the first of the three, he's likely the oldest because he speaks first. He pipes up and he asks famously this question, consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. He's basically asking, Job, is suffering growing in your life? Well, you must have planted a suffering seed somewhere. You've sown something bad. Now you're reaping the fruit of it. How's it tasting, Job? Ooh, not good. Yeah. And the other two, of course, are no better than the first. Bill Dad, the second friend, uh, sort of the original prosperity gospel preacher. Here he goes on to say, from looking at your sickness, Job, it's obvious you've got a lack of faith, brother, because surely God does not reject the one who's in faith or who is upright. Zophar, the third friend, he's even worse. He says to Job, Job, your insistence that you haven't done anything to deserve this is so offensive to me as your friend. I wish God would show up and shut you up. Miserable comforters, indeed. Now, what's wrong with their advice? I mean, what's what's wrong with it? Because it sounds kind of like a lot of advice maybe you've heard over the years, especially in faith communities. So what's wrong with it? Well, what's wrong with it is that their advice, hear this, ignores the biblical complexity of life. Biblical complexity. What do I mean? I mean, let's look here as a case study at the life of another person who is suffering and going through it in the Bible, in the Old Testament, a man by the name of Elijah. And maybe you've heard of him. And Elijah, at one point in his story, in the book of 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah is suicidally depressed. Uh, This is after his famous battle at Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. He's on the run from Queen Jezebel, and he's so depressed that he actually prays, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Hmm. That's, That's pretty dark. It's something, right? Yeah. Basically, he's saying, kill me now, God. Yeah. So what does God do for this suffering and depressed man? Well, it's amazing because it's complex. The Bible says the angel of the Lord comes to him. This is likely Jesus in the Old Testament, but the angel of the Lord comes to Elijah and it says he touches him, he speaks to him, he cooks for him, and he puts him back to sleep. Now, time out. Let's rewind that play and ask what just happened there. Did the angel come and rebuke him for his lack of faith? Asked him if he confessed all known sin? Asked if he pleaded the blood, confessed the word over his life, gotten in faith, and broken all generational curses? No. What did the angel of the Lord do? He showed he understood the biblical complexity of Elijah's life. He addressed his relational nature, right? He, he touched him. He addressed his physical nature. He cooked for him. Our, our man needed a meal, right? I mean, he addressed Elijah's psychological nature. He put him back to sleep his mind, needed a rest. He addressed Elisha's emotional nature. He, he had a conversation with him, right, and calmed him down. And yes, later on we see God did address, <coughs> excuse me, Elijah's spiritual nature at the mountain, and God checked him pretty hard about the pity party he was throwing for himself. But it was only and only and only after he had comforted the rest of him, see. 
You say, well, aha, ah, there it is. In the end, it was a lack of faith driving it. Well, oh, oh, hang on. For those of you familiar with the faith perspective in here, I am a person of faith. I am. I have pages and pages of scripture. I use to confess over my life. God's word has created a power, Genesis 1. Life and death are in the tongue. I believe in miracles. I have had the gifts of the spirit are for today. I have had what I would call an inexplicable, miraculous, instantaneous, enough qualifiers there for you, healing happen in my physical body. I believe without faith it's impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. that sometimes you don't make it into your promised land because of a lack of faith. But do you know why I believe those things? I believe them because they are in God's word, right? His word tells me those things. But do you know what else his word tells me and you? His word tells me that to always say that people suffer and die because of a lack of faith is purely reductionistic. And you can know that right here in Job. I mean, all his friends have done is reduce his suffering down to a spiritual reason, right? You must ascend somewhere, Job, but that's not the case, is it? No, it's not. Nor is it the case with the man who was born blind in the New Testament, right? The people came to Jesus. Disciples came. Who sinned, right? When where's the curse coming down? Uh, is it from him or is it from his family, his parents? Because no one, Jesus, being righteous, has ever suffered. And what did Jesus, the great physician, answer? He said, neither this happened so that the glory of God may be displayed in his life. Now, let me ask you, what kind of comforter are you? What kind of comforter are you? When someone in your life, right, a friend, a a loved one, someone in your community group is going through it, and when they're suffering, are you able to address the complexity of another person in your life? Their relational nature, emotional nature, their physical nature, right? Or do you always reduce it down just to a spiritual answer? So when Carrie and I were, were first married, I could have been one of Job's friends, She'd had this extended sickness and period of illness after we got married, and she'd become really sad and discouraged at the pain she's going through and difficulties with handling it. And you'd figure being this good, you know, minister, pastor person, that I would you know, help her and have some good answers for her. And if you, you figured that, then you, you figured wrong, all right? Uh, and my consistent answer over this multiple-month period was something to the effect of, and I think I even said once, what's wrong with you? Get your faith up. And she sort of dutifully endured that line of miserable comfort for a number of months. And then she finally had enough and she asked me, what's wrong with you? That's not helping. (laughs) She was right. She was right. Now, I don't know that I'm much better of a comforter today, but I have learned not to run that play. (laughs) And so should you. Dr. D.A. Carson writes this about Job's friends. He said that, quote, there is a way of using theology and theological arguments that wounds rather than heals. This is not the fault of theology and theological arguments. It is a fault of the miserable comforter who fastens on an inappropriate fragment of truth or whose timing is off or whose attitude is condescending or whose application is insensitive or whose true theology is couched in such culture-laden cliches that they grate rather than comfort. Job's friends teach us, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy, right? Offer people comfort, not cliches. 
But, but we still need comfort when we suffer, right? That's what the book of Job teaches us. So then where can we get it? Where ought we to get it? That's number two. Let's look at some better comforters now. And let me just suggest to you two kinds of comforters, comfort based on what we see happening to and through Job in the book. And they are this. First, we're going to look at lamentation. And then second, magnification. Let's look at these briefly in turn. First lamentation. Uh, Let's look at chapter six here, a few verses, one through four. It says, then Job replied, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors, he says, are marshaled against me. What's he doing? Well, what's he, what he's doing is a biblical form of therapy. It's actually a spiritual practice called the lament. The lament, which Job does throughout the book, and the word lament literally means to tell again or to rehearse. So Job is rehearsing, he's telling again and again and again, if you read the book, what's happening to him. So far from just getting over it, can you see? Far from just keeping a stem of her lip. Job goes over and over again what's happening to him. And his words, oh, they're not pretty. They're not pious. They're not pleasant. Job says, did you catch it? It feels like God has shot him with poison arrows. Another point, he says, God, it feels like you've slashed open my kidneys and I'm bleeding on the ground. Another point, he says, God, you're like a storm. You've come to drown me and then crush me. Let me ask you, does that sound like a man who's handling it well? No, I'm serious. Let me ask you again. What do you think? Do you think Job is handling it well? You should. You should. And here's why. There's actually another book about human suffering. It was written, it was called The Plague. And it was written by the atheist Albert Camus in which a terrible plague strikes a North African town in Algeria. And the novel is all about the, the different ways different characters respond and deal with human suffering. And in the end, the book is really the skeptic and the atheist's response to suffering, which is this. They say, you know, that suffering, uh, human war, genocide, terrible things are so awful, it makes life a absurd it means god's irrelevant and everything is pointless and kemu even has one of the characters in the book ask the question he wants you to ask which is this then one of the characters asks but what does it mean the plague what's suffering mean he says it's life that's all there's no point to it and he concludes this way thus each of us had to be content to live only for the day alone under the vast indifference of the sky. Yeah. He's saying suffering is meaningless and God, if he even exists, doesn't care a whit about what you're going through. You're all alone. Now think about this. Both Job and Camus, they both say some pretty hard stuff about God, don't they? Both of them rail at suffering and the things people go through. So what's the difference, right? I mean, is there a difference? Oh, there's a difference. And it's a big difference. The difference is this. That Job, can you see, he rails not at a vast indifferent sky, 
but he rails at God himself. The whole time, even while he's waiting for some kind, any kind of response or help, he never stops praying. He never stops appealing to God for help or mercy or breakthrough. Job stays in relationship with and laments to a God he can't control, right? But by the end of the book, you see, Job's lamenting has made him great. And the fact that he can't stop, won't stop lamenting, no matter what comes his way, has given him a name that will last forever. Writer Barbara Brown Taylor says this in her book, An Altar in the World. She says, Job turns from his friends, who in any case are more invested in defending God than they are in defending him. He will not heed their pious counsel any more than he will follow his wife's advice to curse God and die. Job will deal with God or he will deal with no one. If God will not answer him, then he will fill the air with his own furious poetry. This is how faith looks sometimes. A blunt refusal to stop speaking into the divine silence. But here's the amazing part. At the end of the book, when you read it, you see God comes and rebukes who? He rebukes Job's friends. And he says to them, and you got to catch this, he says to Job's friends, he says, you have not spoken of me what is right, as has my servant Job. Oh, and how did Job speak? He lamented. He lamented, right? His words were rough, but they were always aimed at God. And if there's one person in my life who's taught me the value of this, again, it's my wife. Uh, I can't even tell you how many times we've had this conversation. Her. There's something going on with you. What's wrong? Me. What? I'm fine. I'm fine. Her. You should talk about it. Uh, here's me. I'm fine. Really, I am. What do you mean? Her. Are you sure? Because you don't seem okay. You're, you're totally depressed. Just admit it. Me, what are you talking about? I'm fine. Her, all righty then. (laughs) Me, three days later, I'm totally depressed. (laughs) Her, I knew it. (laughs) What's it like to be you? You don't even know what's going on on the inside of you. (laughs) Me, help me. me. She's helped me see through her own courage really that stuffing it down is no comfort complaining to others really is no comfort but lamenting before God is matter of fact it's so healing there's an important there's actually a whole book in the Bible named after it second kind of comfort we see here is what's called magnification magnification let's let's look at job chapter 7 job asks what is man that you magnify him that you're concerned about him that you examine him every morning and you try him every moment Elizabeth Elliot was a Christian writer and a former missionary who wrote a book called No Graven Image, and maybe you've heard of it, and it told the story of a young missionary woman named Margaret who went to Ecuador in hopes of translating the Bible and giving it uh, to uh, a tribe there, uh, a native tribe who did not know God's word. And the key part to her work in the story you see was meeting a man named Pedro who spoke both English and knew the unwritten dialect of the tribe, and, and everything seemed to be going fine and going great and just when it seemed like it was going well Margaret one day she comes back to the village where they were working to discover that Pedro has an infected wound in his leg 
And at his request, she gives him an injection of penicillin to help with the infection. But to her horror, he goes into shock and he dies. The villagers blame her for killing him. Her work is finished. The Bible's never translated. And she goes home a failure. And the book ends with Margaret in a profound state of confusion. There's no miraculous healing, no thing that seemed to work for good. She stands over his grave and she asks this. And God, what of him? I am with thee, he said. With me in this? He had allowed Pedro to die. And does he now? I asked myself there at the graveside, ask me to worship him. And if any of you have ever lost a child, you've buried a parent or a loved one too young, you've stood over the grave of a dream of a life or a family or a marriage that's been broken, you know you've asked yourself the same question. Does God ask me to worship him now? And the answer Elliot gives in the book is yes. Yes, he does. And here's why. And here's how the book closes. He, she, she writes, God, if he was merely my accomplice had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. Freed me. Now, maybe you don't like what she's saying here. And plenty of people didn't when the book was written. Actually, there was a big outcry and protest from the Christian community. And as a matter of fact, uh, the uh, famous president of a large and impactful Christian seminary bragged that he had personally kept her book off the bestseller list because he disagreed with it. It offended him. And all these people said, what you wrote, Elizabeth, it couldn't happen because they all thought like Job's friends, God could not, would not allow this to happen to a righteous person. But what they failed to realize was that the whole book was based on her own story, her own real-life experience. In her first years of being a missionary in South America, a real-life version of Pedro, a translator, was shot and killed, and their work came to an end. And then after that, it actually got worse because a flood and then a theft robbed them of even the little progress they had made. And after all of that, Elizabeth Elliot's husband, Jim, along with four other missionaries, walked into the South American jungle to make contact with a tribe notorious for killing outsiders and one another. And Jim Elliot and the other men were all speared to death, leaving Elizabeth widowed and pregnant with their first child. And years later in her autobiography, she responded to well-meaning Christians who tried to find some silver lining in what happened. And she wrote this. She said, we are tempted to assume a simple equation here. Five men died. This will mean X number of Wairani Christians. Perhaps so. Perhaps not. God is God. I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. That is the same spirit that taunted, if thou be the son of God. Come down from the cross. Now, what she's saying, what she's saying that had happened to her in her life, it's this. Can you see? She's saying God had gotten bigger, bigger in her life. He had become magnified because she no longer thought, even though it was never true, that God was under her control, accountable to her, supposed to do what she wanted, write the story she liked, right? I mean, isn't it funny? We do the same thing. We stand in front of mountains or oceans, right, or stars, and we know those things are way bigger and beyond us. We don't demand they conform to us, but then we look at the God who made all of them, and we demand he conform to us. Oh, is God your accomplice? 
or is he God? Do you have a big God? I mean, a big God. Not just a God who can do all things, but a God who can do all things as he pleases. If you've rejected God here, because you've gone through something difficult, and I don't want to minimize anyone's pain, I don't know your story, your trauma, what you've been through by any means. But if it's served to turn you into a skeptic like Camus, it shows really in a way God was just your accomplice. He was there to drive your getaway car in life away from pain. See, Let me ask you, what's your plan for God to become bigger in your life? What's your plan? You need that. You need, hear me, a big God. Not just a God who can do all things, but a God who can do all things as he pleases. Now, we don't like this. I don't like this because it's humbling. It makes me so small. But wait a minute. Isn't that what I really need? Don't I need what John the Baptist saw? That I must decrease. He must increase. He must become bigger, magnified. To answer Job's question, church, God has a plan to magnify you. To hear this, to make your life great, but nowhere in God's plan to make you great does it ever include a small God. Only a big God can make you big. A small God makes small, tiny people. A big God makes big people. It's your choice. If you let him, God's got a plan to make your life great. And maybe, just maybe, probably, it includes difficulty, even suffering along the way. But the irony is, as you and I, as we become smaller and God becomes bigger and magnified, we become magnified and bigger in the end, right? Job decreased in the, oh, he got so small. But in the end, what happened to him? He increased. He's gotten so big, so large. Here we are talking about him thousands of years later. He has a name that'll live forever to the end of time. You don't need an accomplice. You need a big God who can do all things as he pleases. Therefore, let whatever you're going through now free you of whatever small gods maybe you're hanging on to. Let's look at this finally. There's a third form of comfort here. Let's look here at number three. There's one more form of comfort that the book offers us here. We got to see, and Job himself calls it his form of comfort, his consolation. It's in chapter six again. He says, then I would still have this, look, consolation, comfort. My joy, he says, in unrelenting pain, here it is, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. He's saying my consolation, my real comfort is this. I haven't denied God. What's going on? Well, what's going on is that Job, right before this, we read it, he actually asks God to take his life, to end his life because he's in such pain. But you'll notice he doesn't do it, right? Job, that is. Job doesn't do it. He asks God like Elijah asks God, showing that Job has refused suicide as a form of comfort. He's refused it as a form of comfort because he knows he doesn't have the right to take his own life. And neither do you. It's no comfort to you, nor to the people that you love. But Job is asking God to do this because he says his only comfort is that he hadn't denied God. He's saying, I haven't denied him. I've kept the words of a holy one. But Job here, he's beginning to crack because he's afraid the suffering and the pain are going to get to him. And he will deny God and lose his comfort, right? His only comfort is that he's got his integrity, but he might lose it. And therefore, he's beginning to buckle. But listen. Listen. 
That's a great form of consolation up to a point, isn't it? I mean, it's a great thing to be able to say, oh God, I've hung on to you in my trouble, right? I've, I'm hanging on to you in my distress. If you were here on time at the beginning of the service, you would have heard, heard us read Psalm 73. I have made the Lord my God my refuge. Can you say that in the midst of trouble? God, I'm hanging on to you. You're my refuge. That's some consolation for your soul right there. But, but it's got a limit. It's got a limit. And Job's beginning to see that. Can you, can you see what Job's doing here? He, he, he's basing his sense that God loves him on his own performance, right? His own ability to keep the words of the Holy One. And he knows it can't last. He knows it can't last. And Job, is, he's kind of right for doing this, and he, he's kind of wrong for doing it. He's right here because he's seeing everybody's got a limit, including himself. No one can always perfectly keep the words of the Holy One, as Job put it. But he was wrong to make his own performance the basis of God's ongoing and permanent love toward him. But hear this. The crack in Job's soul is opening him up to a frightening thought for him. But it's wonderful for us, which is this, that maybe, oh, just maybe God's love for us isn't based on our performance, isn't based on our ability to keep the words of a holy one. Job's Job's comfort is good, but ultimately it's going to fall short. Yes, God cares about righteousness, about your performance. Yes, he keeps a record. I mean, Psalm 130 said, God, if if you kept this record, who could stand? No one. He said, no one. Job is saying here, I'd rather lose my life than the sense that God loves me. But Job is basing that on something small, finite, something that could end. But we have something far better today. We've got a better comfort, which Job comfort, Job's comfort points us to, which is this. That one day, many years later, another innocent sufferer would be forsaken by his friends in his hour of need and suffering. Jesus Christ on the cross was abandoned by the friends he had loved and served perfectly. He hung between two thieves as one of them mocked him and the soldiers taunted him. These weren't just miserable comforters, but miserable humans. And the miserable words they spoke were the last thing Jesus ever heard. See, when Job cried out, God ultimately answered, but when Jesus cried out, he got nothing. What was happening? What was happening? Here's what. Jesus was answering the question of Job's friends, which is this. Who, being innocent, ever suffered? Huh? Where were the upright ever destroyed? Who has God rejected while being blameless? And the answer to all those questions is on the cross, that Jesus was rejected. He was destroyed. He suffered infinitely, though he had obeyed the Lord his God perfectly. He had never denied the words of the Holy One, so that his performance in the midst of his suffering could pass to you, could be imputed to you. And that's the gospel. Do you realize how good that is? You can say, I have kept the words of the Holy One, my God, perfectly. I have obeyed and loved Him and clung to Him at every moment. I have the consolation of a perfect record in my soul. But it's only because I've got a wounded comforter. His name is Jesus, and He suffered for me. Oh, church, friends, you can have Job's comfort a million, billion times infinity because you got a perfect record of perfect love. 
towards a perfectly powerful, mighty, big God, though you got nothing to deserve it. Oh, you can therefore say and sing the words of the old hymn, well may the accuser roar of things that I have done. Oh, I know them all and thousands more. My Jehovah knoweth none. And when you suffer, you can say, God, I know I haven't done everything right, but yet because of Jesus, I have done everything right in my Savior, my sufferer, my defender. And though you may not know the reasons you're going through it, you may never know. Job never got an answer. He never knew the reason that he suffered. You can know as a child of God, as a Christian, it's not because you're being punished. All of that went on to your great consolation, your great comfort. Jesus, whose record comes to you makes you a beloved child of God. You're in his hands and no one can snatch you out. Ann Voskamp wrote in her book, 1,000 Gifts, about suffering. She said, wrote, God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips, how will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible.